We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, specifically verse 18. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the back table over here to grab. But uh, we're actually going to... I get one verse. um, But I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit between chapters 1 and 2 in particular. So if you want to open to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, our verse for today is Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, Some of you know me. Many of you probably don't. Uh, Something about me, I grew up in the Lutheran church. And in the Lutheran church, you sing hymns. And so I grew up loving hymns. I've often used uh, hymns as like my devotional. I've got several different hymnals. And the reason I love hymns is because uh, essentially hymns are doctrine set to music. And I know Pastor Andrew talked about uh, being a, a theology geek. And I confess I'm one of those two. Um, my bookshelves are filled with systematic theologies and books with titles like uh, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ and hermeneutics, authority, and canon. So I'm into the whole uh, theology thing. In fact, I can't remember the last time I actually read a fiction book cover to cover. Um, Well, the two have something in common. As I said, hymns are essentially doctrine set to music. And you know whether you're a hymn lover or not that music, that songs have a way of taking root in your heart and in your mind, especially songs you learn in your childhood. The great reformer Martin Luther knew that. Uh, He wrote a lot of hymns, and actually he often set his hymns to common tavern tunes of the day so that people would be familiar with them and that they remember them. Um, One of my favorite hymns of all time is called The Solid Rock, or On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. I wanted to share a couple of the stanzas with you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I love that hymn because it reminds me of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. It stands as an anchor for my faith in, uh, in difficult times. So what does all this have to do with uh, our passage today? Well, many uh, commentators believe that this section in Colossians, uh, particularly verses 15 through 20, was a hymn. Now, commentators speculate on whether Paul was the original author of the hymn or he took a hymn that the church at Colossae was already familiar with and adapted, and adapted it. Uh, It doesn't really matter. Uh, It's God's word now. (laughs) Um, But I like to think, since 
we're going to speculate. I like to think that Paul took a hymn that they were already familiar with, and he adapted it. Um, he used a vehicle that was already familiar to them. He wanted to remind the Colossian church of what they already knew. As he says earlier in chapter 1, he wants to remind them of the word of truth, the gospel that was delivered to them by his brother Epaphras. That gospel that they had received, that they had heard and believed. So Paul wants to use this to remind them of what they already knew. See, as we've discussed the last few weeks, false teaching had crept into the church at Colossae. And it's a false teaching that must have exerted some attraction to the Christians there. As there is in every age of the church, um, there are some who claimed to have the inside track on spiritual truth and look down on people they considered unenlightened who wouldn't follow their program. Now, we don't know the specifics of the false teaching. We have some idea. We can, we can speculate again based on what Paul says specifically in chapter 2. Um, but we don't know the specific details of what the false teaching was. But it was likely some form of syncretism. Syncretism is uh, it's kind of a mishmash of beliefs. Uh, you know, a little from here and a little from there. Something that we're familiar with uh, in our culture today. Colossae was a very cosmopolitan city. And so the Colossians were exposed to all kinds of different beliefs and philosophies. And so they were, in that context, um, susceptible to that kind of syncretism in their church. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and then 18 and 19. Colossians 2, verses 8 and then 18 and 19. Give us some insight into what this false teaching may have been. And Andrew read, uh, Andrew read some of this already. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And then verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See, the false teachers were likely people within the church. Not necessarily people outside the church. They were bragging about their ability to find ultimate spiritual fulfillment by their own program of visions and asceticism. Asceticism is kind of a denial of pleasure, if you will. Whatever the, whatever the specifics were, the essence of what the false teaching was is this, according to Colossians 2.8. It was not according to Christ. 
Always. Always. All false belief systems either reject what the Bible teaches about the person of Christ, that is, they deny his deity or his true humanity, or they seek to add something to the work of Christ, some system of religious or aesthetic works. Or they'll do both. Subtract from his person and add to his work. In other words, what Christ accomplished on the cross, they say, is not sufficient. Some system of works has to be added as a means of true spirituality and access to God. That's precisely what the false teachers were doing in Colossae. Any teaching that questions the sufficiency of Christ, not only for initial salvation, but for spiritual growth and ultimate salvation from judgment, is not according to Christ. The false teachers were so preoccupied with their own program for spiritual fullness that they were separating themselves from the only true source of spiritual power. As Paul says in Colossians 2, they were, they were cutting themselves off from the head. Jesus Christ, the one in whom God in all his fullness is to be found, the one through whom God has accomplished the reconciliation of the world. Again, in Colossians 2.19, they have separated themselves from the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So that was the nature of the false teaching Paul was combating in this hymn. His task was to convince the Colossian Christians not to succumb to the false teaching that had arisen in their church. His task was to, as John Piper would say, trumpet an exalted view of Christ. Expounding truths, assuring Colossian believers of the centrality and supremacy of Christ. That's the center of Paul's argument here. He wants to hold up Christ. He wants to trumpet the centrality and the supremacy of Christ to the Colossian Christians as they received it. At the first, he wants to remind Colossian believers that they need nothing else. You're familiar with the philosophy the best defense is a good offense. I heard a story once about how a bank trained its tellers to detect counterfeit money. They were to become so intimately familiar with genuine currency that they'd spot a fake right away. I think that's what Paul sets out to do here in this hymn, and specifically in Colossians 1.18. Now let's look at again at our verse 118. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the body, the church. Now that might sound familiar to you. Paul uses the body uh, metaphor elsewhere. 
Um, he uses it in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4 and 5. But there he emphasizes the interconnectedness or the, the relationships among individual believers in the church, our interdependence. But here, Paul shifts the metaphor a little bit. His focus, his emphasis here is on Christ and the body's connection to and dependence on him as its head. See, in the ancient world, the head was seen as the governing member of the body. The head controlled the body, but more than that, it also provided for its life and its sustenance. Now, this especially makes sense in light of what we know about what the false teaching may have been. Here where you had people arguing that the ultimate spiritual experience had to be found in places in addition to Christ, Paul holds up Christ as the one who is the true and only source of life for the body. As we saw in verses 15 through 17, Christ we see Christ's relationship to creation, uh, to the old order. He is above it. He's the sustainer of the old, uh, old creation and all it contains. Um, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And in him all things hold together. Now, now Christ is preeminent over his new creation, the church. But in a different way from his relationship with the old creation. In a much more personal and intimate way. His relationship now is firstborn from the dead. Jesus stepped into human existence as a humble baby. He lived the life that we could not. In fact, he did so in the face of the same struggles and the same temptations that we face, Pastor Andrew pointed out in the last few weeks. He died a shameful death for our sins, and he rose for our justification. The commentator N.T. Wright puts it this way, Though always Lord by right, he must become Lord in fact by defeating sin and death. And I love this from the commentator David Garland. I'm I'm paraphrasing a little here. He's referring to to the hymn here in Colossians chapter 1. The first section, verses 15 through 17 lauds Christ as the sphere of creation, the mediator of creation, the preserver and controller of creation, and creation's aim. The second section brings the cosmic Christ down to earth, where blood flows from a body strung up on a cross. Christians know the supreme creator and sustainer of all things as the crucified and resurrected Lord. What he was by right, he became in fact by his death 
burial, and resurrection as firstborn from the dead. Not just the first to be resurrected, but as the founder and initiator of this new order of resurrection that all believers, all believers both now enjoy and look forward to when Jesus comes again. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 21, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And finally in verse 18, God's purpose in all this, God's purpose in Christ being the head of the church and firstborn from the dead is that in everything he might be preeminent or as other translations have it, that in, other, that, that in all things he might have the supremacy. Now, not that Christ was not already eternally sovereign over uh, his creation, But through his resurrection, Jesus established his power over a fallen fallen and rebellious world to a new degree. By his resurrection, he has conquered Satan, sin, and death. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Colossians 2.15 As David Garland puts it, the image of invisible God entered the plane of human existence in order to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by means of his humiliating death. See, God's ultimate intention was to bring all of creation under his rule through Christ. So Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the supremacy. So what does that mean for us today? Well, like the Colossians, syncretism is all around us. Um, Get on social media. Um, But even in the church... Syncretism is all around us. And when I say the church, I mean capital C. Not necessarily Anchor Church, but the church, capital C. Um, We're constantly exposed to philosophies and beliefs that would tell us that Christ alone is not sufficient. That there are rules and practices and special knowledge or special experiences that we need to add to the faith that we've received. In this hymn in Colossians chapter 1, Paul makes it clear to the church at Colossae that Christians find all they need in Christ. Christ alone is to be the object of our worship. He alone is the sole means of deliverance from the power of darkness. He alone is the means for our transference 
into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. He alone is the only one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is our only hope of resurrection from the dead. Paul is telling the Colossians, you don't need to fear. You don't need to give in to those who would tell you that um, you need to worship these angels or you need to have these visions or you need to practice this kind of fasting. He's saying that Jesus only is sufficient in what he's done for us on the cross. For us, you'll you'll notice in Colossians and actually throughout Paul's epistles, he uses the word knowledge a lot. Um, In a lot of ways today, I think that's an unpopular concept. Um, People are not fond of theology because it sounds dry and cold, but what theology is is a study of God. It's knowing and understanding who God is. It's the knowledge of those truths about who Christ is and what he's done for us that Paul is reminding us to hold fast to. When the doubts come in and the lies creep in, that Jesus isn't enough. It's our familiarity with that genuine currency of faith that exposes the counterfeits and should move us to doxology, as Andrew was talking about. But to, it should move us to celebration and praise. Uh, there's, a, there's a radio podcast I'm fond of. It's called The White Horse Inn. You may have heard of it. Um, and the panel was talking the other week. They used, a, I like alliteration, and so they had these four Ds, and it was... It was drama. You know, we know the story of the Bible. Hopefully we know the story of the Bible. Um, it's historical fact. It's, it's the drama that we read. And the four Ds were drama. And then we move from drama to doctrine. Uh, we, we read the story. We understand the truths uh, that are there. And knowing and understanding God's word in particular about Jesus Christ, moves us to doxology, and then finally to discipleship. We should be moved to praise when we're reminded of the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that should affect the way we live every day. That should inform the way we walk as disciples. It's our familiarity with that genuine currency of faith that exposes the counterfeits and moves us to doxology to sing with all the saints on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus, we thank you that you are 
preeminent, that you are supreme over your creation, not just as ruler and creator and sustainer of the universe, but as our head. Through your incarnation, your death, burial, and resurrection, you make us your own as we come to faith in you. Jesus, may that move us to worship and praise and to walk in a worthy manner after you. Not because we have to to earn your favor, but because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.